John 2 in your Bibles, please. This evening we will be examining verses 12 through 25 of John chapter 2. As we look into the history books, uh, there's little doubt if you were to do a study throughout history that the majority of governments throughout time have been established under some some sort of monarchy, some sort of individual rule, be it uh, a monarchy or be it a dictatorship. There's always been a man at the top. The United States is a bit unique or had been for many years in that uh, there was a balance of powers. There was the powers being delegated to numerous people. We see it a few times in the history books, but not quite often, whereby there is an enumeration of powers that are separated to multiple people for checks and balances. As we read history, and we think about the idea of monarchies uh, in particular, oftentimes during transitions between rulers, where one ruler was stepping out and another ruler was perhaps stepping in as king, he would begin his reign with some public display of authority. Sometimes that display would be in the form of a great feast. We can read in scripture of some of these. Uh, We know in particular in Daniel that Belshazzar had a great feast. Now he had been a uh, dual leader with his semi-retired king father. We remember that from the book of Daniel. But he was doing so in order to show his authority. Sometimes the building of great monuments would array leaders as they began to rule. We uh, saw this in, we would see this or could see this in history through particularly the Egyptian pharaohs. Each pharaoh trying to outdo the other with his pyramids and his sphinx and all of these uh, grand monuments to his glory. We also see this in Nebuchadnezzar's day as Nebuchadnezzar uh, seeks to uh, show his glory through these monuments. Sometimes it would be uh, through the destruction of enemies. Various leaders throughout time as they would arise up, the first thing that they would do would be destroy all those people who perhaps uh, he deemed as enemies to him or to his family or to his rule or to his nation. Regardless of how it went about, an important part of ruling, as we understand it, is a display of authority. When a person is ruling over others, he has a tendency to show authority. Now, as Jesus came upon this earth, We do not liken Jesus in any way to the whims of a carnal, sinful man. And yet we recognize as he came to this earth that he was coming declaring himself as a king. And as he was coming declaring that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, declaring himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, the king of Israel, he came bringing public displays of his authority as well. These displays were intended to establish in the eyes of all men the reality of Jesus' authority over them and to demonstrate to Israel that their king had come. And today, as we look into John chapter 2, we are going to see the first public display, the first public assertion by Jesus Christ of his own authority. Now, as we think about this, we think about what we've learned in John already, we know that John the Baptist has already announced the authority of Jesus Christ. We've seen the the wedding feast at Cana and the miracle at Cana and recognized Christ's power and authority through this miracle. But to this point, and we've also seen uh, by implication in the book of John, the Holy Spirit 
testify and God the Father testified to the authority of Jesus Christ when the Spirit descended upon him as a dove and the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we did not read that specifically in the account of John. We talked about why we don't see it. And yet we know that this authority has been there, that the testimony has been there. Yet Jesus Christ has not yet given his own statement of his authority until this passage, John 2, 12 through 25. And so this evening we'll look at three manifestations of Christ's authority through his interaction with those in the temple. Three manifestations of Christ's authority through his interactions with those in the temple. The first manifestation is in verses 12 through 17. Look at it with me. And after this, speaking of the wedding marriage at Cana, we recall, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Verse 12 gives us a bit of side light as we look into these three manifestations. Verse 12 recounts what happened immediately after the marriage of Cana. After the wedding feast, Jesus, his mother, his brethren, who apparently were also at the wedding, and his disciples journeyed to Capernaum. Now, if we were looking at a map tonight, I obviously do not have a map put up, but if we were looking at a map, we know the Sea of Galilee would be right here. Cana would have been west of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is on the very north tip of the Sea of Galilee. It is a fishing town. It is a town that was right there on the sea. It would have been a, a fairly small town, a fairly rural area, and yet a fishing area. Jesus accompanies his mother and his family to Capernaum. Capernaum was a place that Jesus would often visit. It's quite possible uh, that it may have been somewhat of a home base for him. There at Capernaum, he would often teach in the synagogues on the Sabbath. He would cast out devils there, according to Luke 4.31. He would heal the nobleman's son there, according to John 4.46. He would heal the son of a centurion as well in Capernaum, according to Luke 7. That was the, the, the centurion, as we recall, who the people of Capernaum said, this is a good man, he built for us the synagogue. So the centurion whose son was healed probably put forth the money to build the synagogue in Capernaum, the one that Jesus Christ often taught at. And so we see Capernaum as a place of some relevance uh, to Jesus Christ's ministry. However, in this passage, it seems Jesus was simply accompanying his family back to the city. He was just there to perhaps take his mother back. We hear no mention in the book of John or any other book outside of passing remarks um, and Jesus Christ's childhood and birth about Joseph, Mary's husband, Jesus' earthly father. We uh, can assume, and it seems likely, that by this point somehow Joseph had passed away. Seems as though Mary uh, is no longer operating under the authority of her husband. Um, Jesus Christ often takes it upon himself to care for her in, in ways on the cross. He will see later on in the book of John, he actually gives John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
the responsibility of caring for her after Jesus' death. And so we see no mention of Joseph. Perhaps Mary has re- had relatives in Capernaum. And once Joseph passed away, perhaps they relocated to Capernaum where Mary had more relatives or something to that effect. We don't exactly know why, but it seems as though the escort brought them back to Capernaum where Jesus Christ left his brethren and his mother. Jesus would soon leave Capernaum as we see in verse 12. And in verse 13, we see why he heads to the Jews' Passover in Jerusalem. Now, this would mark the first of possibly three, possibly four Passovers mentioned during Jesus' ministry. There's a little bit of a uh, controversy, scholarly controversy over this, and it is somewhat important because it marks how long Jesus Christ's ministry lasted. Now, if you were to look on your outline of the book of John, you would see three designated Passovers. The book of John itself designates no other Passovers. Now, there are many arguments that Jesus Christ only attended one Passover. And as we look in the Synoptic Gospels, all of those Passover events happened during one Passover. John seems to contradict that because we see three separate Passover events in the book of John. Many people argue that there's a fourth. Now, we know that the Passover feasts would happen once a year. Jesus Christ's ministry began at his baptism. According, uh, if we account for his temptation, if we account for one and a half months uh, after his baptism, uh, allowing for perhaps um, the marriage feast at Cana to take a little bit of, of a while, we would understand that at least one and a half months, potentially up to six months, have passed since Jesus Christ's ministry began and his first Passover. That first Passover is here in John 2.13. There is a second possible Passover found in John 5.1 where the scriptures speak of a feast, although the Passover is not explicitly mentioned. John 6.4 explicitly mentions a Passover, and then we know that Jesus Christ was crucified at Passover. Uh, On the day, in fact, of atonement, Jesus Christ was crucified. In fact, the very hour that the Passover lamb was to be killed, he was crucified. He gave up the ghost. He yielded his spirit. And so we know at least three Passovers occurred during Jesus Christ's ministry. Many argue that there were four. If there were four, that means Jesus Christ's ministry was approximately three and a half years long. If there were three, that means Jesus Christ's ministry was approximately two and a half years long. And so his ministry was somewhere between two and a half and three and a half years most likely. And we understand this. From the Passovers. Now, why would there be, if, if we see mention of a feast, why would we assume or not be able to assume that it was explicitly a Passover? Well, there were three feasts that were required for men in Jerusalem, men in Israel, to come to Jerusalem for that feast. There was the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. These were the three, excuse me, explicit times per year that Jewish men were required to visit Jerusalem for a feast. And so if simply a feast is mentioned, we do not know if it's the Passover feast or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Tabernacles. As far as we know from Scripture, the feast, when people mentioned the feast, they were in fact speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles, not necessarily the Feast of Passover. And so we take these things into account and that's how we try to judge how many Passovers 
uh, or how long Jesus Christ's ministry is based upon how many Passovers we see throughout his ministry. All of that to say this is the first Passover that we come across in the book of John and in Jesus Christ's ministry. Now, before we move on, I would also like us to understand a few things about the Passover. Passover was a feast initiated by God through Moses to commemorate the events of Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus 12, we remember Israel has been under the bondage of Egypt for some time. Hundreds of years, many of those years being enslaved by Egyptian pharaohs. Yet God had chosen to redeem this people, and Exodus 12 describes the specific events surrounding their redemption. God commanded that every Israelite household kill a lamb and place the blood of that lamb on the side posts and the upper crossbeam of the door to their living place. They were also to have a feast unto the Lord known as the Feast of Passover. That evening, you all are familiar with the historical account, God said that the angel of the Lord would pass through the land of Egypt and anyone who was not under a door that was covered by the blood of a Passover lamb, the firstborn child of that family would be slain. By this, God was going to manifest his ultimate glory to Pharaoh and to Egypt and by this, God was going to effect the redemption of his people from the land of Egypt. At this same time, the feast was appointed to be observed on the 14th day of the first month at the tabernacle or the temple of the Lord as, as later uh, in Jewish history. And so God designated that according to the religious calendar... The Passover month would be the first month of the year. According to the civil calendar, that's not the case. The Jews had two different calendars. But according to their religious calendar, the month of Passover the first, uh, would become the first month of that year, take place on the 14th day of that first month. And so Jesus, in obedience to the law of God, made it a point to, to attend these Passover feasts regularly. As we continue in the passage... Verse 14 describes what Jesus saw when he got to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And verse 14 says, He found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. Now, it is not necessarily a problem that merchants of sacrificial animals and changers of money were conducting business during Passover. It was very important during the time of Passover that the people in Israel and those who would come from all around the nation surrounding Israel to the Passover feast be able to make their sacrifices. God even made provision in the law so that those who were not able to bring a lamb could redeem uh, money for a lamb in Jerusalem in order that they might have a sacrifice for the Passover. Now, of course, if they were too poor for a lamb, the scripture allowed them to bring two doves so that the doves could then be the Passover sacrifice on the altar for them. It was also important because of the many nations from which people were coming, particularly those nations south of Israel where there was not necessarily the rule of Roman law, that there were money changers. Money changers were important. 
See, the only currency that would have been accepted in Jerusalem at the time was most likely the Roman currency. Perhaps there was still some Hebrew currency of years gone by, but as we recall from Scripture, Jesus Christ, when he's speaking to those who asked him about tribute, said, take a look at the coins. Whose image is on the coin? And immediately the people said, it's Caesar's image. And so we understand that Roman currency was fairly commonly circulated even in Israel at the day, which makes sense because Israel was under Roman occupation. And so there was the necessity of money changers to change the money from these other currencies to Roman currency in order that people could live and could interact in Jerusalem while they were there for the Passover. So the problem was not that there were merchants. The problem was not that there were money changers. The problem was the location in which they were conducting their transactions. Notice it says in verse 14 that Jesus found in the temple. In the temple. It is a well-known saying in retail that location is everything. Location, location, location. We have all known businesses that offer great products. But I have physically driven by businesses before and said, man, I love that that business. They do great. They have great products, but their location is going to kill them. The access to their location is so terrible. It's so hard to find out how to even get to their store that I just want to give up before I can even find the entrance to their store. Location is important. Businesses have gone south because of poor locations. It would make sense then that the success of one's sacrificial animal business or the success of one's money-changing ventures were somewhat dependent upon how close in proximity one was to the temple of God. After all, somebody wakes up and they're ready to go do their Passover sacrifice. They want to buy an animal. They walk into Jerusalem and they don't want to go out of their way, so they immediately begin walking toward the temple. And they say, okay, we'll pick something up on the way. The closer you are to the temple, the better location you had to be able to sell and change money, the more money you made. It had gotten to the places we see in verse 14 where the vendors were physically in the temple conducting their business. Now that does not mean that they had gone through the doors of the physical building. The temple, when we think of the temple in Jerusalem, was the entire complex. You had the outer courts. The outer courts, the court of Solomon as we understand it in scripture, and the court of women, and the court of the Gentiles, those were all considered a part of the temple. And so to one degree or another, these merchants had encroached into these various courts of the temple. Now one thing we know about God's character, and through the teaching of God's word, both Old and New Testament, is that God hates it when the carnal and the worldly encroaches upon the sacred. God does not, is not pleased. It is an offense to his character when the carnal and the worldly encroach the sacred. God did not have a problem with merchants making money or money changers making money. But they had better not take advantage of the sacredness of the temple to make their money. That was not appropriate according to God's character. Numerous circumstances would disqualify a person in the Levitical law in Jewish cleansing rituals from the ability to worship God. These cleansing rituals in place give us a hint as to the character of God. Literally, if a person was not holy, set apart 
when they came to worship God, they were expected not to. If they had some sort of ceremonial uncleanness in their bodies, they were asked not to participate in worship. And yet this carnal merchandising and commerce had found its way into the temple. Now what comes with commerce? Bargaining, ill-gotten gain, lying, appealing to the flesh, all of these advertising techniques. This is all a part of commerce. This is all a part of people trying to get you to buy their product. And the carnal was encroaching upon the sacred. Well, what does Jesus do? We find, what did Jesus do? We find in verse 15, And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple. Jesus immediately set out to make a scourge of small cords. Now, the Greek word that describes this scourge, scourge is literally a whip. The Greek word that describes it is the Greek word phragelion, which, for those of you who are interested in science, is the word that is the root word of the word flagellum in Latin. Now, those of you that know what a flagellum is in the scientific sense, it's an appendage, as it were. It, uh, it, we have flagellums on our cells that almost act as little motors that propel the cell along. It's kind of a long appendage, as it were. So, as we envision this whip, we're envisioning a long cord. However, the phragelion in Greek terms, the phragelion of the Roman day, also would spread itself out into numerous small scourges at the end, numerous small whips. So you'd have a long whip and then it would spread. It would uh, bisect into numerous other ends. And with this scourge, Jesus drove out the animals the money changers, and the merchants. Now, let's be clear about this. Jesus was not whipping people. Why would you create a scourge? They were somewhat common for the day. Now, certainly, the whips were used in um, beatings and in corporal punishments. But to get all of those animals moving, you would need something. And that's what he made the scourge for. He made it to get the animals moving. If the animals were gone, the merchants would surely follow. That's their business. He didn't need to whip the merchants. He was whipping the animals to get them moving, to get them out of the temple. Now, he didn't just whip the animals. He also overthrew the changers of the money, overthrew the tables of the money changers, excuse me, and poured out all their money. He turned to those who sold doves and he said unto those that sold doves in verse 16, take these things hence. See, the scourge wouldn't work on the doves because they were in cages. So he couldn't whip the doves out of the temple. He whipped the animals out of the temple. He took the money changers' money and he overthrew it. That would take a little while to clean up, I bet. And then he looked at the people that sold the doves and said, take these cages and get them out of the temple. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. He drives the merchants out of the temple and the disciples immediately think of the messianic prophecy found in verse 17. It says, And his disciples remember that it is written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's a quote from Psalm 69 verse 9. If you want to make that cross reference in your Bibles and you don't have it already. It's a quote from Psalm 69 9. For the zeal of thine house hath, hath, hath eaten me up 
and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. Jesus bore the righteous indignation of his father as he witnessed these men profaning that which is sacred with their carnal means. And in this righteous indignation, he drove them out of the temple. Now as Christ did these acts, this is our first point, he exhibited his authority. We, we speak in our first point that Christ's authority is manifest in truth. His authority is manifest in truth. The authority was manifest in the reality of the truth of what Jesus Christ did here. There was not one merchant, not one priest, not one Levite, and probably very few in Israel who did not recognize that the merchants were not supposed to be in the temple. But the people of Israel had allowed this convenience to override obedience. See, it was convenient for the merchants to be in the temple. It was convenient. Perhaps they had even bribed some of the priests and Levites. This is just a, a, a tendency of man speculation on my part. Perhaps money had changed hands to get the best spot in the temple. Perhaps there were only a few people that were allowed to break this law of separation of the sacred and the carnal and perhaps they were the ones that had the deepest pockets we don't exactly know what the situation was but what we can understand is that no one was surprised and no one did not recognize that Jesus Christ was justified in his actions Jesus came as the light of the world to call Israel back to God's truth and it was the fact that Jesus was calling people back to the truth that gave him such authority. So we see that the authority that Christ had rested in the very reality that he came preaching the truth of God. Now as a brief side note, this is where our authority lies as well. When we go into a lost and dying world, when we knock on doors on a Thursday night, when we speak to people who are contentious with us about, about the gospel and about the Bible... The only thing that validates the way that we live and what we say is the fact that it is true. If what we believe is a lie, then all of the sacrifices that we make in this life, all of the time that we spend doing the things of God, if what we believe is a lie, then it's all for naught. Truly it is, as Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15, it would make us, of all men, most miserable if what we believe is a lie. But since we hold the truth, since the Bible is the absolute truth, the spoken word of God, the truth becomes the authority through which we can boldly proclaim the word of God because we're not proclaiming our word. We're not proclaiming our thoughts. We're not proclaiming our perspectives. We're proclaiming God's word. But Jesus' evidences of authority do not stop there. Christ's authority is not just manifest in the truth of his claims. He came and he drove those people out of the temple. He was exerting truth. He was standing for the truth. He was restoring truth to the, tabernacle, to the temple's worship. And you notice that nobody complained about him doing it. Nobody told him to stop. You say, well, pastor, they did. Stay, stay with me as we see second all in verses 18 through 22. Christ's authority is manifest in his power. Christ's authority is manifest in his power. See, no one, as we look at this passage, opposed Jesus while he was in the middle of his purge. 
while he was driving those animals out with the scourge, when he looked at the people that sold the doves and said, take these doves out of the temple. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. When he overturned the tables of the money changers, we read nowhere that there was any restraint. No one came up to him and restrained him. Why? Because who would be seen opposing the truth of God's word in the temple? What Levite, what priest, what Sanhedrin member would come and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. These merchants can be here. How easy would it be for someone to to open the scroll of the law and say, look, the merchants aren't supposed to be there. Everyone knew what Jesus Christ was doing was right. Everyone knew that it was true. The leaders of the people, uh, the Jews, as we see designated in verse 18, didn't question his action they responded to his action seeking a sign of his authority look at verse 18 with me and we'll read through verse 22 then answered the jews and said unto him what sign showest thou unto us seeing that thou doest these things jesus answered and said unto them destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up then said the jews forty and six years was this temple in the building and wilt thou rear it up in three days but he spake of the temple of his body When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It's interesting to note that the scriptures do not say that the Jewish leaders, the Jews here, question Jesus. That's not the word that you see in your King James Bible, is it? The word you see is they answered Jesus. They had just witnessed a man cleanse the temple of its sacrilegious merchandising. And the leader's response was not to question his action because his action was undeniably righteous. And so they went to question his authority in doing so. Now, let me ask you a question. Does a man really need to have any more authority than the truth of God's word to stand against error? to stand up and correct error? Must error really only be pinpointed and removed by those who have obvious positions of power? Do you see how this question, this response from the Jews, is more of a distraction than anything to divert the attention of the people away from Jesus Christ's righteous action and to divert it to a seeking of his authority? I am the unfortunate recipient of having seen this in a church once. A man got up and he had done something terrible. It was the pastor, in fact. And he had made lip service to apologize, but his actions did not follow his apology. He showed no fruit of repentance. And somebody stood up from the congregation and read scripture. All they did was read scripture. And when he sat down, the pastor did not address the scripture that was read he only spoke against the authority of the person that read it as i studied this picture numerous emotions flooded back to me from that experience as we recognize that this happens all the time doesn't it happen in the political scene when somebody has a good truth argument that uh, that the other party cannot fight against what do they do they attack the person's authority they they try to reduce the People focus upon the truth by focusing upon the authority or the person that's giving the truth. 
That is exactly what the Jews are doing here. They are trying to divert the people's attention from the truth of Jesus Christ's righteous actions by turning their eyes to Jesus Christ's supposed lack of authority in their eyes. However, Jesus Christ does not play the game. They ask him in verse 18, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus, we need a sign. We need a sign that you have the authority to do what you just did. Notice Jesus' response to them in verse 20. Excuse me, in verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus' response makes little sense to them in a physical perspective. That if they were to destroy the temple that was in 46 years in the making, he would raise it up again in three days. But much like the parables, regardless of the response Jesus would have given them, he knew that they already did not believe. The Jews did not respond to Jesus Christ's action with the intent that if he showed a proper sign, they would believe on him. They simply, this was, this was nothing more than a distraction. It was nothing more than a straw man to try and divert people from Jesus Christ's righteous actions. It was their way of trying to lick their wounds. Recognizing that they were caught with their, with their hand in the cookie jar. They were caught allowing something that was wrong and somebody finally called them out on it. And the person that called them out on it happened to be Jesus Christ. All through Christ's ministry... Jesus Christ would contend with this unbelief. Until the day that Christ calls us home, we will find and contend with this same unbelief in the world. And the condemnation is this. If the leaders of the Jews will not accept Jesus' authority based upon truth, they will not accept His authority based upon power either. Surely, if they would not accept that Jesus Christ had authority based upon His righteous actions, nor would they accept his authority even if he rose from the dead. And so Jesus speaks to them in such a way that they would not understand, but that those who believe on him would understand that Jesus would rise again the third day and the authority upon which he stands to do the things that he did upon this earth rest upon the authority of himself being the Messiah, God in flesh, the power that he had to raise himself up the third day after the temple having been destroyed. That is his body. Now on that day the disciples learned of the resurrection and yet they didn't understand. They would not understand until after Jesus Christ physically arose from the dead and they thought back upon these events and they recognized that Jesus Christ was speaking of his body. And of course verse 21 tells us that when Jesus had risen from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. On that day, the disciples learned of the resurrection. They likewise understood that Jesus' authority to cleanse the temple was founded upon the reality that he is God. And he was simply cleansing his own house. He was simply doing some house cleaning. Now, there's one final area of authority that touches us as believers very closely that we need to see this evening. Our first area of authority, Christ's authority is manifest in truth. Second, Christ's authority is manifest in power. In verses 23 through 25, we see that Christ's Truth and power, those two areas of his authority, are manifest in his church. And this is exciting. Christ's truth and power are manifest in his church. Look with me at verses 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name 
when they saw the miracles which he did. Notice verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Verse 23 tells us that though the Jewish leadership did not believe in Jesus, yet many who were there at the time of the Passover believed him for the miracles which he had done. We do not have an explicit recording of the miracles that Jesus Christ did, at least in the book of John. Perhaps some of the miracles that he did, as recorded in the Passovers and the Synoptic Gospels, were done on this first Passover. We do not know for sure. But what is curious is verse 24. The scriptures say that Jesus did not commit himself unto them, these believers, because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. What does he mean? What does the scriptures mean that many believed on him, but Jesus Christ did not commit himself unto them? See, if we're not careful with this phrase, we could get some pretty strange theology out of it. That they believed on him, but he didn't commit himself to them. So let's try to understand this this evening. The word commit here is literally the word for faith. Pistuo. The word that means and is often translated faith in the scripture is the word commit here. And it is used in the sense of entrusting to someone. Jesus did not entrust himself to those who believed on him is literally what this means. Now the reason given that Jesus did not entrust himself to them is that he knew their hearts. He knew all men. He knew what was in them. Literally, he was not willing to rely upon these men and women who believed as witnesses for him. Has it ever been curious to you that Jesus oftentimes expected throughout the Gospels and even commanded that the people that he healed should not speak of his name? Was it ever curious to you when Jesus Christ would heal someone that he would immediately look at them and say, tell no one? Did that ever confuse you? It certainly confused me. Why would Jesus Christ explicitly command people not to tell of him? Now, I understand it in certain circumstances. When Jesus Christ heals a demoniac, when he heals a man that, was, that is demon-possessed, perhaps he doesn't want the testimony of that demon-possessed man to be the testimony upon which he stands. But what about those who weren't demon-possessed? What about those who simply desired they were normal people they desired to see Christ they believed on him and they desired to witness of him has it ever been interesting to you that Jesus Christ would physically ask people not to testify well the reason is right here I believe we see the reason right here because Jesus knew men knew what was in their hearts and though they believed on him yet their hearts were not in a place where they could adequately and properly testify of him to where he could rely upon them for his testimony see there was a point in his ministry however where this would change there was a point in Jesus' ministry where he would send out a few disciples who would testify of Christ and do miracles in his name there would be another point where Jesus told his disciples that they would be witnesses unto him in Ju Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Now the common denominator between each point where Jesus Christ did commit himself unto men to testify of him. When he sent out the twelve, when he sent out the seventy, 
when he commissioned men and he said, you will be witnesses to me. The common denominator, if we think in math terms, of all of those things was that the power of the Holy Spirit was upon those witnesses. Specifically, as we get into the book of Acts, the indwelling Holy Spirit, which enabled men for ministry. See, Jesus did not entrust himself to these witnesses because he, as it says here, he knew what was in their hearts. Though they believed, the Holy Spirit had not yet begun indwelling men. This would not happen until Acts chapter 2. And so, since Pentecost had not yet taken place, there was no Holy Spirit empowerment behind the witness of men. And Jesus Christ was not going to entrust his ministry to the hearts of men until they were Holy Spirit indwelled. And so, the two times that we do see him commission his disciples to go, he gave them the authority. The Holy Spirit literally empowered them according to the authority of Jesus Christ to give them that to work those miracles in the name of Christ. But folks, there was coming a day when the Holy Spirit would come and indwell all believers. And after that day, it was the responsibility of every Holy Spirit indwelled believer known to us as the church to be witnesses of Christ. To be witnesses that Jesus Christ was alive. But see, he was no longer present. It was the church's responsibility to carry on the work that Jesus Christ had begun. And on the day that the Holy Spirit fell upon the men and women at Pentecost, Jesus committed himself unto those who believed because he knew their hearts and their hearts had been changed by the Holy Spirit of God. See, God didn't commit himself unto them here because their hearts had not been changed. There had been no renewal. There had been no indwelling Holy Spirit. He would not commit himself fully unto men until the day that the Holy Spirit came. And on that day was the day where Jesus Christ would be fully committed unto men for his ministry and his witness. This brings us to our application as we close. If you've been following me, you should see where this is going. Jesus Christ's authority rested in truth and rested in power, both of which were witnessed to his deity. He did not commit himself unto any man because he knew what was in man. But ladies and gentlemen, if you are a born-again believer in this room, Jesus has committed himself unto you. He has entrusted the ministry of the gospel to you. If you are a born-again believer in this room, Jesus Christ has entrusted to you the responsibility of continuing the work that he began. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, He rose again the third day. And on that day, he verified the truth of his message that he had already testified. The day that he rose up the temple that they had destroyed, that was the day that this prophecy of Jesus Christ, that this mention of authority was verified. The Jews asked, prove to us that you have the authority to do this. It was proven on the day he rose again on the cross, uh, uh, from from the dead. He verified on that day that he is indeed the Son of God. He ascended up to the Father, but he did not leave us comfortless. He sent his Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit which indwells every believer, changes us from the inside out, and enables us to be proper witnesses of the person of Jesus Christ to the world around us. 
And so though Jesus Christ would not entrust himself unto the men of that day, because those men and women, he knew their hearts. He knew what was in them. He knew that they were still men and women that had that did not benefit from the indwelling Holy Spirit. We do. And so as you and I go out into the world and we witness not in our own authority, we witness in Christ's authority. We do not preach our truth. We preach Christ's truth. The truth of God founded upon the Word of God. And we demonstrate Christ's power through our changed lives. Christ's authority, not through a member of a church's hierarchy, not through a pope or a bishop or a pastor, but Christ's authority in you through the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives is what is realized in our hearts. Now consider the implications of such a statement. Consider the responsibility that is yours and is mine. First, we recognize that it is a responsibility, a delegated authority by Jesus Christ of reflecting Christ to the world around us. Second, we recognize that we are responsible as vessels entrusted with the Holy Spirit of God through which men will be convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Christ has committed himself unto us. He's entrusted the ministry of the gospel to us, his church. And so Christ's truth and Christ's power find their manifestation in this age through you and through me. What a responsibility. What a privilege that we bear to bear the responsibility to recognize that Christ has entrusted to us the ministry of the gospel, the work that he began. And as we go from here this evening, we consider our lives, what we do, what we say, certainly we can make application. As we consider the church body and why we're here to begin with, we can recognize that it is not our power It is not our authority. Jesus Christ has not entrusted the gospel to us because of what was in our hearts, but because of how our hearts are now that the Holy Spirit has indwelled us. And so let's rely upon that authority. Let's rely upon that power. Not our own power, not our own ability, not our own uh, ability to convince people, not our own ability to uh, impress people but upon the power of Christ power of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives let's pray